I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 19. Judges chapter 19. As we mentioned last week, there, the book of Judges ends with a description of the political and the religious decline of Israel, but it's in reverse order from the introduction. So last week we noted the corruption of worship, the religious decline, um, where the idolatry that was in the household of Micah is escalated to become idolatry in the tribe of Dan. Well, in chapter 19, that decline only magnifies where Benjamin, in this chapter, looks like Sodom. You won't find illustrations of this in your children's storybook Bible. The scene is gruesome. In fact, I believe it's quite possibly the darkest chapter in all of Scripture. Why is it so dark? What is it about this people? Why, Why is this recorded here for us? Well, it opens with an explanation. In those days when there was no king in Israel. And that reminds us back what we read in chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that's the full refrain that happens four times. You have the opening, um, or the first time that refrain occurs in chapter 17, 6, has the full significance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was anarchy. And then it closes, the book closes with that same full refrain, but then in 18.1 and 19.1, it gives us just the first portion of that. In those days, there was no king in Israel. This was probably written, the book of Judges was probably written early in the uh, period of Israel's monarchy. And so it would have been a time where they were essentially, the people were being reminded here of what they were prior to having a king sort of like, beware. This is a warning to you that we could fall right back into this. So it's a reminder as well as a warning to them of the, of the darkness that they experienced not that long prior to the forming of the monarchy. So last week, we saw the religious consequences of everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. This week, we see the moral consequences of Israel's depravity. So before we read Judges 19, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, this is a heavy chapter. It's a weighty topic. It's a challenging one and and can be very discouraging if we did not see the whole picture. If we just rested here in this chapter, and we do need to do that for a season, for a time. Lord, we need to feel conviction about the weight of our sin, be reminded of depravity and all of its consequences. But Lord, we also cry out for hope, and we know that we have that hope in the gospel. So as we study this chapter You give us a full sense of our sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God. 
in Christ so that we might worship and glorify you during this time. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Judges chapter 19. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together, and the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the son went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house and to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your, and your female servant and the young man with your servant with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. 
So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out to you. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. The, but the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they went and they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, I assume I have your attention after that. It speaks of the, the utter depths of man's depravity, and they're difficult to comprehend. We're shocked by them. And yet they're too important to ignore. There's, there's nothing light about this chapter. There's nothing light about this study. It's very hard reading, but it's our history. It's true. It really happened. And we cannot afford to avoid its penetrating insight. They are, the events portrayed in this chapter are worse than anything Hollywood produces. But they really happened. Maybe you've heard, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard, atheist philosopher George Santayana's famous quote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. However, even though we face this depravity, even though we remember this past and we confront it head on, we're still doomed to repeat it. That is what depravity is, right? It's still with us. We cannot escape it. Mankind is totally depraved. And so our hope is in a, another world, a future world. 
right, that we can only receive a taste of in this life. Well, we begin with verses 1 through 9, the absence of morality. The absence of morality. Actually, this, this, I'm going to go through the whole chapter, the absence of morality describes it. But beginning with verses 1 through 9 really is the tamest portion of the whole chapter. It's this example of hospitality. It's interesting, right? This, we open with um, the description of the concubine who literally played the harlot, who was unfaithful to the Levite. The Levite having a concubine was problematic to begin with, but now that concubine has been unfaithful to him. And it says, it refers to him as her husband. And so there's, some, there's an indication here that she's, she's obviously of lower status than a wife. She's not a full uh, legal wife, but she's much more than a prostitute. She's much more than a harlot. And the Levite ultimately wants to reconcile with her. Right? She departs after being unfaithful, and she lives with her father for four months, and then he goes to retrieve her. He brings along two donkeys, clearly indicating his desire to bring her back with himself. And so the father-in-law shows hospitality to him. In fact, it's excessive. It's repeated over and over, right? He intended to stay three days, and day four, he's begging them to stay longer, so he does. And day five, he's try- he starts the same, saying the same things that he did day four. But finally, he just comes to the point where he recognizes that he, he needs to leave no regardless of the fact that it's, the day is, is closing. Right? They only get six miles away to Jebus uh, before the day is nearly done. And he decides not to stop there because it's a foreign occupied city. It's occupied by the Jebusites. So he's worried that their safety will be threatened there. So instead he goes on to Gibeah. And he departs at night, which leaves this ominous tone for what follows. Now, you have the irony in verses 10 through 15 of him only getting six miles, having the opportunity to stay with, um, in Jebus, which was Jerusalem, uh, but thinking it would be safer, he goes on to Gibeah. The second irony is that they, they went there thinking they would find hospitality in Gibeah. So they go and they settle, they rest in the, in the square. Basically, letting people know that they need need a place to stay, that they're foreigners, they're sojourning. And so they're expecting someone to offer hospitality to them, and it doesn't come until another sojourner who happens to be living there in Gibeah at the time, but one who had been sojourning an Ephraimite comes to them and offers a place to stay. They didn't need much. They just needed a location to stay. They had all that they needed to take care of themselves. And so the, man, the old man brings him in. So Benjamin here, the city of Gibeah that's occupied by Benjamites, has spiraled below the morality of even the conflict-prone Ephraimites, right? The Ephraim was the one that had problems with Gideon and Jephthah that confronted them. And yet it was their own sin, their own laziness to enter into battle that, that was really bothering them. 
And so they're, they're looking for conflict. But here you have two Ephraimites, or you have someone from Ephraim receiving um, this Levite uh, and, and his servant and his concubine into his home. But what comes next is obviously the most shocking of the chapter. Verses 16 through 26 is the example of depravity. So you have from excessive hospitality uh, being received in, in Bethlehem, now you have the shocking hostility received in Gibeah. But it's not so much the people of Gibeah that that shock us, but how the Levite responds. His his depravity seems to be falling even lower than the Benjamites here. We don't need to review that section. Um, It's gruesome. It's, It's clearly meant to... To cause disgust in the reader, confusion. Jeremiah Burroughs says it's a, a very evil choice for any soul under heaven to choose the least sin rather than the greatest affliction. To avoid even the, the least sin we should be willing to endure the greatest affliction. But what do you find this Levite doing? He avoids affliction at all costs by casting his concubine out to the mob. Right? It's, it's unthinkable what he's willing to do here to keep himself safe. And then he only gets even more callous. So that by the end, he's dismembering his concubine. I think I even heard an audible gasp as I read that. That's, I think, the intent. We're supposed to go, what is happening? What is going on here? In 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 7, we read about Saul doing something similar. King Saul took a yoke of oxen, right, so two ox, oxen that are, that are yoked together. He takes them and he cuts them in pieces and he sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to this oxen or to his oxen. So shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. So by dividing the oxen and sending them out in pieces to all the tribes, he was calling them out to war, and he's saying, if you refuse to come, let what I've done to these oxen be done to your oxen. That's, I think, what's what's happening here. The Levite's calling out all the tribes. He's saying, come, gather with us, be united And if you don't come, let what happened to my concubine be done to your household. So the divided woman was sent 
to each tribe, suggesting that the nation is divided. And this whole section, this chapter, serves as one of the worst pictures, probably the worst picture of moral corruption. Um, Hosea references Gibeah. Hosea 9.9, we read, They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Again, in chapter 10, verse 9, From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. So it's as if this is the, the lowest point. This is the worst point of depravity for the nation of Israel. It's the opposite of the climax, right? It's the nadir of their corruption. So let me summarize this now with a few notes and then, and then we'll wrap it up as well with some concluding thoughts. But the Israelites, specifically the Benjaminites, have become Sodomites. They are acting like Sodom. The same wickedness that we read about in Genesis 19 is now taking place here in Judges 19. Rather than escaping, the story ends in tragedy, which will ultimately lead to a civil war that takes place in the last two chapters of the book of Judges. So the idea is that the the canonization of Israel, this downward spiral of corruption that the nation has been experiencing is now complete. They've come to the rock bottom. It does not get any lower than this. You also see something unique here in this passage. There's, all of the characters are not named. And it highlights the universe, there's the uh, universal characteristic. You could put any name to these characters. It describes the nation as a whole. It could have been anyone. It also speaks to the deterioration of human identity. That they don't even, they're nameless at this point. They've become so corrupt, they're almost inhuman. So the narrator began the book of Judges by naming everyone, even the minor characters were given personal names, but now you don't have any personal names given. So the concubines. The, the the nameless concubine also gives us another symbol, right? She is left there right in front of the door. And it, get, it, it almost pauses. The narrative positive, pauses on this scene where her hand is, is clutching the threshold. It indicts the Levite. Right, because she had gone there to, she had made her way back to the house, probably crawling back. And she reaches out, thinking that's where she, the only place she could find safety. Right, but nothing was found there. Instead of finding safety from a religious leader, she was left alone to die. I think we also see something of the treatment of women throughout the book of Judges. You have the portrayal of their power and their success in the women of Aksa in Judges chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, and then Deborah as well in Judges 4 through 5. You have Jael mentioned. Um, 
but now we've spiraled downward to basically the victim is a, a nameless concubine. Remember, in Judges 5, you had Sisera's mother imagining her son's army raping Israelite women. But here, it's the Israelites who are raping their own women. So this, again, is a picture of the downward spiral of the nation, the absence of morality. And it is a picture of the absence of hope as well. Right, once again, you don't, it's a, it, there's a chapter here that doesn't speak of, of God intervening, interacting. We, we know he's sovereign over what's taking place here, but it, the narrator does not mention God's actions. It's, it's a picture of his lack of participation, which leaves them in the depths of their sin. Apart from the Lord's mercy, humanity is left to wallow in her sin. Again, Romans chapter 1, verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their body among themselves. And it goes on, the rest of chapter 1, which we've studied in our Sunday school class. The nation was in need of serious sifting, right, of purging out the evil and the wickedness from the covenant community. And so the absence of, of God is a picture of that purging taking place. We also see that not only do we need to be rescued from our enemies, but we need to be rescued from ourselves. We need one who is greater than any of the judges and saviors that we've seen in the book of Judges. We need the Lord Jesus Christ, right, who gives us a, a picture as well. Let's, let's start with the picture of marriage we get from this chapter. The marriage, it's not even a, a real marriage. It's, it's a quasi-marriage of this Levite and his concubine where the husband fails to love his wife. When he should have protected her, he protected himself. When the crowd called for him, he threw his bride outside in his place. It's, a, it's the very opposite of the gospel. When he should have been united with her, he was dividing her up and separating her. So, so again, come to this chapter with an awareness of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Don't minimize sin. Our reaction to grave and heinous sin as is depicted in this chapter, it might be evidence that we think of our sin far too lightly. We say, how could they do such a thing? It's disgusting, it's despicable, it's gross. I would never do such a thing. We think very lightly about our own sin, and so when we see something so dis despicable here, it shocks us. But the moral corruption depicted in this story is really not that far removed from our own story. Again, Jeremiah Burroughs says, you would think it a horrible wickedness for any man 
to be so deep in lust with another woman as to wish the death of his wife. This would be a horrible wickedness. And yet, this is in your hearts, to wish that God had no being so that you might have your sin. So that your bridegroom would not exist, so that just for this moment, this temporary fleeting experience, you might enjoy your sin. You would wish that God did not exist. Israel's religious failure led to gross moral failure, and every step they tried to take out of it only led them deeper into it. And so we cannot minimize our sin. We cannot grow comfortable with it. We need to recognize how evil it is. That the very least sin would have required the death of Christ. That's why we should be willing to endure the greatest affliction in order to avoid the least sin. And yet, that's precisely why he died, right? To deliver us from the penalty and the power of sin. We see our own depravity in these worst of times, but that ought to stir up our affections for the Savior who is preparing us to enter into the best of times. Right? It's only when we acknowledge what our sin truly deserves and what our sin really is, that we appreciate what Christ's blood fully purchased. Rather than sending his bride outside, Christ went outside. rather than handing her rather than handing her over to the lusts of the world he willingly endured the shame and the torture in her place And so if you belong to Christ, then you are that unfaithful concubine. But instead of being left to die, we were redeemed by the bridegroom's own precious blood. And so we'll sing this song, There is a Fountain, by William Cooper. He says, dear dying lamb, your precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. That's our hope, right? That the depravity will be no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this gruesome picture of depravity that affects each one of us. Lord, it is a picture of, of our sin. And it is disgusting. And it is despicable. And we 
we come confessing our sin and relying only upon the blood of Christ. And we rejoice to know that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all. Their guilty stains. Amen.